Good morning, and please open to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be in Hebrews this morning and next week as well. And Hebrews 12 has been my go-to chapter this year. And especially, um, I've spent a lot of time meditating on Hebrews 12 and its message of endurance this year, because it's kind of been a long year, right? And that message of endurance, in fact, when we, uh, the men that went on the camping, uh, the men's hike back in September will recognize Hebrews 12. That was the theme of our week. It was also the sermon that I preached out of Hebrews 12 that morning. But the issue is with that sermon, we were all a little sleep deprived from being intense. But now with an extra hour of sleep, hopefully we're a bit more fresh, uh, I'm gonna take another crack at Hebrews chapter 12. But um, before we get there, I actually want to dive back into Hebrews 11 and read a portion of that. Hebrews 11 is uh, known as the hall of faith. This is the testimony of godly men and women in the Old Testament that were willing to suffer and die for their Savior. And so in particular, I want to begin in Hebrews 11.35 where we see some intense suffering and persecution of the Old Testament saints, which is the backdrop for Hebrews chapter 12. So let's pray together and then the reading of the scripture. And so I will take Paul's prayer out of Colossians 1 and we'll make it our own. So Lord, as we come to your scriptures, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, that you would strengthen us with the power of your Holy Spirit according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience and with joy. And this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 11, starting halfway through 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should be made perfect. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So the author of Hebrews begins in chapter 12 with the sports image. It's an image of the Christian life as this race of endurance, which this image brought me back to a memory I had of track. This is my junior year in high school. So on this particular track meet, our coach decided, because we were going up against a, uh, a team that just wasn't that good at track, our coach decided to make this track meet into a practice. And so the day of, he's going through the events with us, and he calls my name. He says, Donahoe, today you're going to run the 400-meter race. Now that's one lap around. The issue is, my only event I ever did was pole vault. So besides a warm-up lap, the extent of the steps that I would take in track were about 20 steps. But when he said, Donahoe, you're going to run the 400 meter, and he had an evil look on his face. So the day of the event comes. I'm in the starting blocks. The gun goes off, and I'm gone. I take off. I'm flying for the first 100, and I pass everyone. I get to the 100-meter mark, and I'm on my way to the 200-meter mark. If, if, this is, if this stage is a track, I'm, I'm cruising to 200 meters. And I mean, I'm having a chariots of fire theme song moment. I get to the 200-meter mark, and something curious happens. It was as if my lungs stopped receiving proper air. My feet, my legs grow, grew so heavy my, it was a surreal experience. My track spikes, where I heard them before going, ch -ch 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 -ch, were like clump, 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 clump. At that point, from 200-meter mark to the 300-meter mark, every single one of the other ra uh, runners passed by me at that point, including my own teammate, which was quite humiliating. And then worst of all, from the 300 mark to the finish line, which is in front of the stands... I could hear my coach, who was sitting somewhere right about there, literally laughing at me, going, come on, Donahoe, ha ha, you know, laughing, mocking me. Bad coach, bad coach. I started a good race, but I did not endure. I did not finish well. And so how about the Christian life? If the Christian life is an endurance race, and the goal is to run faithfully and to endure and to finish well. And if we can imagine at the end of the finish, a banner that reads, to quote Jesus in a parable, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the master. If that's the goal, how do we get there? 
How do we endure? First, we have to be mindful that the scriptures are full of warnings against not persevering in the faith. Inevitably, we all hit the 200-meter mark with all of its troubles and sorrows, and it gets hard. Circumstances of life can knock the wind out of us. Our Christian legs grow weary. And the sobering reality is that if we are seeking to run the Christian life, a race of endurance, we are constantly competing against three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, the devil. The seduction of the world, the enticement towards sin, pressuring us to conform to the world, compromising our convictions with the potential of persecution if, if we don't. Right? There's our flesh. Hebrews 12 talks about this sin that clings so closely. And then there's the devil. The scripture refers to the devil as a deceitful serpent. And the desire of the devil would be to wrap himself around us and choke out our faith. Scripture also refers to the devil as a roaring lion, lion seeking to devour, crouching at our door, seeks to desire, it desires to have us. How do we run with endurance? How do we finish well? The word endurance appears at least four times in this passage of scripture. This is on the heart of the author of Hebrews. For us to endure, how do we endure? It's all about perspective. Hebrews 12 gives us an answer. It's the perspective of the Old Testament saints. It's the perspective of the work of Christ. And it's the perspective of the role of discipline in our lives. And so first, I want us to consider the Old Testament saints. Chapter 12 begins, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So first, what does the author of Hebrews mean by we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses? And by cloud, meaning a large mass of people. This cloud of witnesses, what does it mean that they're witnesses? Well, there's two schools of thought on this, and, and very godly men and women fall on both sides of this debate. One is that these witnesses, um, they're called witnesses because their lives are a witness, a testimony to the faithfulness of God. That's one view. But there's another view that those who have died and are with the Lord are actually watching us, cheering us on, so to speak. Now, it's a tasty debate, but that's really not the main point here. The more important point is the perspective. What do we learn from these faithful Old Testament saints? What do they have in common? And what they have in common is they endured in the midst of persecution, trials, tribulations, and suffering. And how? How did they endure? They lived by faith, the way the Bible defines faith. And we, we have that definition in, at the very beginning of Hebrews 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith is assurance. It's conviction. It's not a blind faith. It's not a leap of faith. 
It's a real faith. It's a real trust in a real God who made real promises and has promised to be faithful until the end. And throughout chapter 11, we are told that these Old Testament witnesses, they endured because they longed for a better resurrection, a resurrection to eternal life. And also they endured because they longed for a better city. Hebrews 11 refers to this heavenly city whose designer and builder is God himself. They lived by faith with this perspective. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. They understood that the earth was not their home. Maybe we could say it this way. They constantly remained homesick, knowing that this earth is not their ultimate home. And and then there's this great line in chapter 11, verse 38. Of these saints, it said, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. This is the perspective of the author of Hebrews, but this was inspired by God. So this is the perspective of God. The world was not worthy of these godly men and women. And so this begs the question for us. To what degree do we seek to live our lives worthy in the eyes of the Lord or worthy in the eyes of the world? If worthy in the eyes of the Lord, then we will chase after him and we will take our holiness seriously. But if we are seeking to be worthy in the eyes of of the world, then we will chase success the way the world defines it. It's the good life defined by the need for constant entertainment and pleasure to the detriment of our soul. It's the constant desire for the creature comforts that we think we need. It's living as though this world is it, that this world is everything. The late John Stott, who was a preacher, author, pastor, made an impact uh, that is worldwide for Christ. He said this. This is a book he wrote called The Radical Disciple. He wrote this when he was 88. To my knowledge, I think this is the last book he wrote. And he has eight chapters, eight short chapters. This is the book that was on his mind and heart at age 88. His chapter is on, called Nonconformity. And here's what he says. He says, A widespread secular trend that Christian disciples have to resist is that of materialism. Materialism, a preoccupation with material things, can smother our spiritual life. Jesus told us not to store up treasures on earth, warned us against coveting. So did the Apostle Paul urging us instead to develop a lifestyle of simplicity, generosity, and contentment, drawn on his own experience of having learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was, Philippians 4. Paul went on to explain that we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. And perhaps he was consciously echoing Job, who said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. In other words... Life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. So we would be wise to travel light. 
We shall take nothing with us. That was the heart of the perspective of the Old Testament saints. They did not think of this world as their home, and they did not think of this world as their treasure. So what's the alternative? It's to the alternative to chasing after the world. It's verse one. Let us lay aside every weight. That's everything that hinders us. Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So there's these questions. What, uh, what weight, what sin do we need to lose in order to run more faithfully? What is your 200 meter mark? so to speak. In Galatians 5, the apostle Paul says, you were running a good race, who, or I could say what, cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. What are those things in our life that make us go from to clump, 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 slowing us down in the Christian life, challenging us in our faithfulness to God? When we do confessions of sin, on Sunday mornings here or in your own private lives? Are there particular sins that continue to pop up? And are we serious about getting rid of those weights, those sins in our lives? Asking the question, not is this okay for me to do, but what will help me to run this race of faith with endurance? So the author of Hebrews urging us in a race of endurance, saying, first, let's look at the Old Testament saints. Let's see what their perspective was all about. But then next, he calls our attention to Jesus. In verse two, Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, and this idea, this concept in the Greek of looking is an idea of turning, deliberately looking away from rival rival attractions and distractions and focusing intently on Jesus. And then the author goes on to give us a very loaded statement as far as why we are to look at Jesus. He says, first, he says, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus went first on the path of suffering. He endured the cross opening up the only way for our salvation. But his work was not finished on the cross. In fact, we are told that he who began a good work will carry it on until the day of completion, according to Philippians 1. So what the apostle or what the author of Hebrews gives us in these verses is a summary of the Christian faith. I have, over the years, dozens of times, diagrammed this out. It's a simple diagram. I've used it with college students. It's simple, but it's profound. And and here's the Christian life. It begins with the doctrine of justification. At the point of time that we bow our, our, our knees, our hearts to Christ, at that point, God justifies us. We're declared righteous, not because of our own works, but because of the cross, that Jesus his life for us, his obedience to us, his death for us, washes away our sin. We are declared righteous in God's eyes. But then the rest of the Christian life is this squiggly line that moves upward. It's, it, it's, it's holiness, but it's squiggly. 
It's the ups and downs. It's the, it's the bad days, the good days, bad seasons, good seasons. But it's the line of sanctification that God is growing us in holiness until we come to another point in time. That point of time is glorification. When we either die and are with the Lord or Jesus returns. And at that point, no more sin. Justification and then a life wrestling with holiness, sanctification until glorification. And from beginning to end, this is the Christian life and the focus is on Christ and he is at work. And the author of Hebrews goes on, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was this joy? It was the joy for Jesus of full obedience to the Father, to be faithful to this plan of salvation. It was the joy that Jesus had in mind of being exalted back to the right hand of the Father after the resurrection. And it was the joy of securing the salvation for those whom he loves. That was the joy. It was out of the joy, this joy, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. What was this path of the cross? Jesus was mocked, assaulted, falsely accused, whipped, humiliated, forsaken, crucified for you and for me. And why? That we would experience joy, the joy of eternal life in God. Hebrews goes on. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the, God, of the throne of God. Jesus ascended to the place of highest authority at the right hand of God. And five times throughout the book of Hebrews, he mentions that Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father. What's the significance of, of Jesus being seated? Well, for, for the author uh, or for the, the audience of Hebrews, they would understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priests in the temple, that there were no priestly chairs in the temple. In the Old Testament, their work was never done. They had to sacrifice for the sins of the people on a daily basis. They never sat. But here comes Jesus, the great and faithful high priest, who his sacrifice was perfect, it was complete, sufficient, eternal. Jesus' work was finished at the cross, sat. And Hebrews goes on. Verses three and four. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So how do we endure when we're struggling, discouraged, tempted to give in to that particular sin, to stop resisting? Author Hebrews calls us to consider, and that word is a loaded word. Consider meaning it's not casual. It's weigh heavily. Weigh heavily the work of Christ. Weigh heavily what Jesus endured. 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So as we consider the work of Christ, it leaves us with a different perspective. We follow a suffering servant who shed his blood for us. And not only that, he shed his blood, but now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of supreme authority. He is ruling and reigning over this world and over our lives as well. And as we endure faithfully, the worst that the world can throw at us, our lives glorify God. What a calling. The author of Hebrews, knowing his audience well, knowing that they have suffered and knowing that they have grown weary, is reminding them of the Old Testament saints. He is reminding them to look at Jesus and his work. And next, he reminds them of the role of discipline in their lives. And I want to read again verses 5 through 11. This is so important for us to grasp. I I continue to find great encouragement from this section. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And now the author of Hebrews will quote from Proverbs 3. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 3 and, or Proverbs 3 and asks, have you forgotten the role of discipline in your life? And the truth of the matter is, in my life at times, yes. And here's why. It's kind of simple. It's God is good, pain is bad. God good, pain bad. Those shouldn't go together. How can God allow pain in our lives, right? But the other says, oh no. No, God is disciplining. And that, that idea behind discipline is educating, instructing, And he does it through trials, through tribulations, through suffering. And so the author is saying, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't assume that what you are going through is meaningless. Don't assume it's just a coincidence. Don't assume that God's love for you has grown cold. I don't know about you, but growing up as a kid, when I did something wrong, my parents disciplined me. And my my response was typically not, oh, thank you, my wise and benevolent parents for instructing me, right? No, it was typically more like, well, that proves it. Once again, they're mean. I don't deserve this. 
But the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 not with God. Not with God. Rather, we have to understand the significance and the purpose of, of, our, of our discipline. And, and here's the significance. Verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord allows, meaning the Lord allows suffering and struggles and persecution, trials, temptations. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. God, our Heavenly Father, is treating us as sons and daughters. And here's what this means. This means when we experience those, is that God's punishment? And punishment means a negative connotation. No, God's punishment was exhausted at the cross on Jesus. So it is not punishment for his sons and daughters. But rather, we could say discipline is privilege. It is the privilege of being his son, his daughter. It is never meaningless. The trials and hardships are allowed and designed to strengthen our faith in God and to grow us in holiness. And that's the purpose. The purpose is holiness. Discipline is painful. It's not pleasant. But what it leads to is the fruit of righteousness. That's the goal. And so with the hard stuff we experience, we should resist the question of why this, why me, but rather ask the question, okay, Lord, what do you want to produce in me as a result of what I'm going through right now? And God will use those moments in our life of intense suffering to teach us things that we may not learn otherwise if life is just good and hunky-dory, right? God has a way of getting our attention, and he may be calling us to deeper prayer and dependence. He may be calling us to a deeper commitment of our entire life to him, no matter what circumstance we're going through. He may be calling us to a season of suffering so that we will have more compassion on others in the future who really suffer. He may be calling us to just trust him by faith, even though we can't see the end of it. He may be reminding us that this is not our home and not to get too comfortable here. For the Christian, every season of life is a track meet. How are you running the race that God has called you to run? Are you cruising well? Are you cruising through the 100-meter mark? You know, you, you, you can quote chariots of fire. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Right? Is that where you are? Or are you hitting the 200-meter mark? Where life is challenging, life is hard. Are you weary? Are you discouraged? And what perspective do we need? We need the perspective of the Old Testament saints Your life is not about being worthy in the eyes of the world. It's about faithfulness to God. We need the perspective of the work of Jesus. He died so that we might live in fullness. He endured and calls us to endure. It's the perspective on discipline. God allows trials and suffering in our lives, and he is at work in the midst of them. And throughout chapter 11, 
There are the yous, Y-O-U. These yous are not singular. They are plural. He is writing to the church. That includes our church. We are called to run this together as the church. I mentioned uh, my track meet in the beginning. I failed to mention two other things. One, from the 200 mark to the 300 mark, when everybody passed me, my own teammate passed me, but he looked over at me, literally as he's running, looked at me and said, come on, Chad, finish strong, right? That's what we're called to do. And then when I was at the 300 mark, coming home on that run of humiliation, I could hear my coach, but drowning out my coach, what was louder than my coach were my, my friends in the stands. They felt sorry for me, yes, but they were cheering me on. That is our role. That is what we're called together. Come on, finish strong. We finish together. We run this together. And we're called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Which brings us this morning to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks... He gave this to his disciples. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And what do we declare? This morning we declare he is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith. Grow us in the knowledge of your glorious grace. Give us a hope that will sustain us. We pray that you would take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that you are with us. And may you be glorified in Jesus' name, amen.